From the Heart.org Radio, this is The Fellow's Corner. Welcome to The Fellow's Corner here at TheHeart.org. My name is Michael Blaha, and I'm a clinical and research fellow at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And today gives me great pleasure to have Dr. Matthew Budoff join me for an interview. Matt is Professor of Medicine and Cardiology at the Los Angeles Biomedical Research Institute and Director of the Local Cardiac CT Reading Center at UCLA. He's founding board member of the Society of Cardiovascular CT and author of the best available textbook on cardiac CT. He also leads the core CT Reading Center for many important studies, including the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. Matt, welcome to the Fellows Corner. Thank you. It's certainly a pleasure to be here. I thought we'd talk a lot about cardiac CT today since, as fellows, we know how important imaging is to clinical practice. It's really bursting on the scene. Many of us want to get training in this area. I thought it would be really interesting to get your perspective on imaging. In particular, I thought it would be interesting to start off by hearing how you became interested in imaging, and in particular, CT. You know, I think it goes back to my early residency when I was interested in uh, preventive medicine, preventive cardiology, and I started doing research with Bruce Brundage, who introduced me to this machine called the Electron Beam CT and started looking at calcium scoring. And uh, it was intriguing to look at the coronaries non-invasively and be able to see who has atherosclerosis or not. He had called it the mammogram of the heart. I think it's moving that direction. Yeah, no doubt. I think that certainly from a preventative standpoint, I'm coming from a preventative background myself, it seems like imaging subclinical atherosclerosis is, is the future, but, and we'll talk more about that. So in terms of imaging subclinical atherosclerosis, there's a couple of modalities out there, I guess, CT being just one of them. What would you say to fellows about trying to choose what modalities that they might study, particular folks who are interested in atherosclerosis? Why CT? You know, I think CT offers both the ability for diagnosis, which I think for the interventional or diagnostic cardiologist is very important to know who has obstructive disease, but also, as we were discussing, it allows visualization of subclinical atherosclerosis, kind of knowing how aggressive to be with statin therapy, maybe antiplatelet therapy as well. So I think it offers with one tool and maybe even with one scan the ability to look at both diagnosis and prognosis in a comprehensive way. That's a great point. And I think CT certainly seems like it has some advantages over other modalities there. So I think a lot of fellows are interested in CT, and a lot of them are trying to think about how they're going to piece together a career maybe with CT imaging as part of what they do. What are some of your advice that you give to fellows who are interested in CT about how to build a career doing imaging? You know, it goes back to my other role as program director for our cardiology fellowship. I think that when you're looking at a career path, obviously I think there's, you know, a few broad strokes, electrophysiology, interventional cardiology. You know, you can do general cardiology. There are certainly, you know, subspecialties beyond that. But I think if you're looking into the general cardiologist or preventive cardiologist, then I think CT becomes a primary modality to help you, again, both with choosing patients who may need further testing but also, you know, those patients who may need most aggressive regimens. So I think, you know, looking at a couple modalities at a minimum would be important. So CT is great because it gives you anatomy, but then you need to add function. So that's going to be either echo or nuclear. I try to limit my fellows to try to focus on two modalities when they want to go down the imaging pathway, and many of them want to do echo, nuclear, and CT. But I think that, you know, the more diffuse you make yourself, the less of an expert in any of those given fields you become. So I think two is probably, in my mind, a good place to end up. That's actually a really good point. Another question I was going to have, 
at least some of the folks that I've talked to, other fellows, have kind of thought about CT and also thought about MRI, and it seems to me like both of those require quite a bit of commitment. Do you, do you recommend people pursue both CT and MRI or kind of choose one of those? It seems like it would be a lot on your plate to try to study all of these modalities. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's been a talk with George Beller and others about I've been involved in some of the ACC meetings related to multimodality imaging fellowships where fellows learn all four modalities, and I think that would not be plausible. It would be a minimum two-year commitment after your cardiology mm -hmm. fellowship. And I just think that that's a lot to ask of people. And, again, I just don't think you're going to have the opportunity to use all four routinely. You're going to prefer a couple of them, and there's a lot of overlap, you know, between the modalities. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I feel like that's kind of been relevant to me thinking about how many things I'm going to study. And I know you've been involved in the task force from the ACC talking about training in advanced CT. And, of course, fellows are always thinking about well, what kind of training do I want to get? Do I want to get level one, level two, level three in certain things? Do you have any perspectives on kind of what advice you give fellows on in terms of how much CT exposure to get and how best to find mentoring in this field? I think of it as the old Chinese menus where you want to pick level three from column A and yeah. maybe a level two from column B. And I think that it would be, you know, good as an imager to be conversant in all four. So mm -hmm. I think you want to get a minimum of level one training in all of them, understand the applications and, you know, the general lingo involved with all four. I think level two would be required in any of the three that you choose to pursue out of the four. Right. So I would say you'd want to be level two in at least one and level three in two others if you really wanted to be a, quote, imager. I think being an imager today and only doing echo or only doing nuclear or only doing CT or MR is not an imager in the general sense anymore. Mm -hmm. I think you have to be an expert in two of the modalities. I think that makes a lot of sense. So your program director there, so you see a lot of folks and talk to folks about who are interested in imaging. What advice do you have, let's say, when folks have finished their training and they have gotten a lot of CT exposure, about going out and then into practice or getting a job, whether it be in academics or private practice, what advice do you give them moving forward, how to stay up to date in the field? Yeah, so, you know, I think there's two parts of the question. One is how to get the training, and, you know, we're lucky. Obviously, I do a lot of training among yeah. our fellows for CT, but for those programs that don't have it, there are a number of places that you can go to get that training, just to revisit your earlier question. And I think the SCCT, you don't have to be a member, but the Society of Cardiac CT has a website that allows you to see where the training is offered. Most of them offer fellow discounts that are, you know, hopefully put it in the realm of possibility for most fellows who don't have that offered at their home institution. To stay current, I think it's fairly easy. If you're doing it, obviously, then by definition you're staying current and you don't have to worry about it. If you're doing 150 cases over three years, then you are staying current in the field. If you're not getting that volume post-training, then there are refresher courses that are available where you can come in and spend a couple days and kind of review cases with an expert. And again, those are fairly widely available, I think, across the United States these days. Yeah, I think I think a lot of fellows take advantage of those. So one thing I'm really curious to pick your brain about is kind of the future of CT. I hear about people trying to emulate FFR with CT, people doing perfusion techniques, and gosh, there's all kinds of things it seems like I hear about every day. Where do you see CT going in the next decade? I think um, FFR is very interesting. I think the ability to do some type of 
flow measurement or estimate flow based on the diameter of the vessel. The contrast enhancement along the vessel is very interesting. It's obviously futuristic at this point, but I think that that's maturing to some degree, and I think we're going to see more studies that are positive. There was a recent multicenter trial presented in Europe that was very positive with high correlation to invasive FFR. So I think that that's going to become something that's plausible. How easy and reproducible it is, I think, still needs to be validated. But I think that's going to be a future application. Perfusion is obviously interesting to everybody to understand, you know, the perfusion and viability issues. But that's a crowded field with Mm -hmm. nuclear being excellent at that, with PET and MRI really being one of the reference standards. So I see less interest moving forward in perfusion, because I think we already have that handled. You know, you talk about where the modalities don't overlap, and CT kind of has anatomy to itself. Right. You know, MRI and PET have perfusion and viability. You know, ECHO has function along with MR. So I think there are different places where each of the modalities will live in the future and will focus on as we move forward. Mm-hmm. So. I had a question about, I guess, technical features of CT. So let's say someone, uh, I'm talking about a fellow, I guess, who's really interested in CT, maybe envisions running a CT reading center or lab someday. What advice do you give in terms of kind of learning the technical features of CT? Certainly CT scanners, the equipment improves all the time. What advice do you give about learning the physics and the technical features of the equipment itself? That's vital, and I think, you know, if anybody who ever wanted to sit for the cardiac CT boards will find out when they try to take the board exam that that physics plays a big role in understanding it. I think any good course that they go to or any, you know, course that's embedded in their training program should incorporate a significant amount of physics and some of the technical parameters. I find the best way to learn the technical parameters is to work with the technologist mm-hmm. and literally just stay in the room for a few days, yeah. you know, where they're doing the studies and you'll learn the technical parameters at least of that piece of equipment quite well. I don't think there's a better substitute than just seeing some cases being performed. Important for fellows all over, I think, to stay there during the acquisition of the scans to understand what's being acquired versus just looking at the scans themselves. That certainly applies to my training, too. I think you and I are both talked about this before, interested in the idea of using CT to look at subclinical atherosclerosis, and it seems to me like it has a lot of appeal for risk prediction. We can integrate kind of the effect of risk factors over time and actually look at disease itself, but there's a lot of pushback by certain people out there. They think that CT won't really have a role here in risk prediction at all. I guess your initial thoughts on where cardiac CT fits in terms of traditional risk factors and biomarkers for risk prediction. You know, I really think that there's going to be no substitute for visualizing atherosclerosis. I think it will become the mammogram of the heart one day. Heart disease is the perfect model for early detection. It's latent for a long period of time. We have great drugs to treat it. It's probably a completely treatable disease once identified, but we need that identification to know who to treat. We can argue that we all love statins and we all put all of our patients we meet on statins, but we don't all diligently get LDLs down to 60 or 70. We don't all diligently get HDLs up to 60 or 70. So I think that the role of knowing who to be aggressive with is going to be more important. And the biomarkers have universally failed. Even in Framingham Heart, home to where CRP was invented, shows no incremental value from looking at ROC curves for either cardiac death or all-cause mortality or even myocardial infarction in using 
things like C-reactive protein or BNP or homocysteine or almost any biomarker right. that you can think of. So we failed with serum biomarkers. They just don't work to stratify risk well enough to add to Framingham models. We need something better. We need to look at who has plaque in their coronaries to know who to treat aggressively. Well, I think that makes great sense. I hear there's detractors in the field. I sometimes read that in the literature. What do you make of some of the arguments countering CT saying that, oh, I don't know, it's overdiagnosing or the radiation is a huge concern? What's kind of your answer to that? Yeah, you know, the radiation is exactly the same as a mammogram for calcium scores. Mm -hmm. So the mammogram of the heart is a good analogy. It affords the same radiation risk that women undergoing mammography afford. And mm -hmm. we've accepted mammography annually. I mean, mammography is recommended, <laughs> at least by the American Cancer Society, annually starting at age 40, where a calcium score, the most aggressive recommendation I could find in the literature, maybe every five years right. uh, with the SHAPE guidelines and maybe don't even repeat it in the ACC guidelines until we know more. So I see that, you know, getting 0.7 millisieverts once every five years to find out if you have the number one cause of death to be a good risk benefit compared to getting 0.7 millisieverts every year to get the number 11 cause of death, breast cancer, I just see that if we're going to do mammography, which I believe in, I think calcium scoring is a no-brainer for our patients and our population. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. The truth lies in the numbers. So where do you see it? And we talked a little bit about CT in general and cardiac CTA and then calcium scoring. Where do you think calcium scoring and CTA fit in terms of the workup of a, either asymptomatic or symptomatic low or high-risk patient? Where do you use each of those two tools? Yes, I think calcium scoring is clearly relegated to the asymptomatic patient, right. the intermediate risk, maybe low intermediate risk, because a lot of women don't hit that 10 to 20%. A lot of work that you've done and other people at Hopkins like Roger Blumenthal have done over the years to demonstrate that women don't get that Framingham 10 to 20% risk stratification. So I think, you know, somewhere between low intermediate and intermediate risk mm -hmm. would be where calcium scoring will live. I think CT angiography, at least now, is relegated to the symptomatic patient. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So borderline treadmill testing, nuclear tests, first-line tests for chest pain, certainly it is going to take a lot of time out of our evaluations in the emergency department as we can stratify people within minutes to a CT angio. We don't have to worry if they're having ongoing chest pain. We don't have to worry about how safe it is to exercise them. Right. There are less false positives with CT angio than nuclear or stress echo imaging. That I just think it's going to be the way that we work up acute chest pain for the low to intermediate probability of coronary disease patients who are, you know, symptomatic patients. Yeah, I think that makes great sense. I think that seems like there are distinct roles for these. At least I find that there's some confusion amongst, I guess, maybe non-imagers or non-cardiologists confuse the roles of these tests and therefore falsely conclude that, at least in my mind, that they're not helpful because they're using them in the wrong populations. Oh, absolutely. And I think there are advocates that believe in things that we haven't yet validated. For example, there's a lot of people who believe that CT angiography will be useful or more useful than a calcium score in the asymptomatic right. patient because it identifies the soft plaque or the non-calcified plaque. But we really haven't validated that cohort yet to recommend its utilization in that area. So I think we have to kind of use what we know, what we're learning, and also balance it with what we don't yet know when we decide how to apply these different tests. Yeah, I think and some of you know, what we did in archives recently, I think, says kind of that same thing, which is we, we just need the evidence identifying that asymptomatic patient, that early non-calcified plaque, that that's helpful. 
anyway, maybe that's in the future. Who knows? Well, I think this is really helpful to hear, for fellows to hear about this field. I guess one of the questions I think that most fellows look for, whether they're doing CATH or EP, is they look to identify that mentor, someone in the field who is doing what they want to do, who can help them. And I think the finding mentors is maybe more clear in CATH or something like that, a field that's been around longer. How do you think you best identify a mentor in the, in the field of imaging? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think you really have to decide as you're going through fellowship, you know, maybe during your first year, you know, what modalities, you know, if you've decided on not to go into the interventional or EP realm, what modalities may be most, you know, suitable to your practice, what you enjoy doing more, you know, do you prefer, you know, putting probes down throats with parenthesophageal echo or, you know, spending hours acquiring MR or something different? And then, you know, look around for your local mentorship. I think a lot of it's going to be defined by local expertise. You know, we always talk about that in imaging. But, you know, I mean, if you're at Harbor UCLA and you want to learn about cardiac MR, we have less options than if you want to learn about cardiac CT, where we have more expertise here. So, you know, part of it is going to be relegated a little bit to your program and the expertise that they have. But I would just find somebody who's akin to your likes and dislikes as a fellow and and try to match yourself up. If you have to go beyond your fellowship, program into another local program, I think that's great. I think, you know, hopefully program directors will be amenable to you, you know, seeking, you know, mentorship. I don't think it should be across the country, but I think it can be across town. If there's a program across town that has somebody who's more suited to you where you can kind of talk with them and maybe even do a little research with them just to kind of get your feet wet in that imaging modality. The kind of discussion we just had, I think needs to happen more often between fellows and professors and so forth in this field. And I know certainly here and a lot of programs that I've spent time talking to people, that a lot of people are interested and they recognize the significance of imaging and they recognize that this field is important and want to get in on that. Thank you so much for answering my questions today. And I hope the fellows really benefit from this as much as I did. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, and I would be remiss as the current president of the SECT not to invite the fellows to our program in July if they have the opportunity in Denver. It's a great time in cardiology to really start exploring imaging as an adjunct, even in the interventional field and EP field, we're using imaging more and more Mm -hmm. to help us with our procedures. So things like CT and MRI are going to play an increasingly large role in those fields as well. Curious, anything else you want to say about that SECT meeting that fellows would want to know about what happens there or what they'll learn there? The first day and a half or two days is a board review, and then the next four days is really a meeting where there's uh, almost every expert in the field from around the world is present. So I think you'll have a lot of opportunity to walk up to experts. It's a little bit smaller scale than the ACC or AHA, so I think it's a little more face time with some of the faculty, and you can really you know, talk to them offline about certain topics that may be of interest. So I think it's a great opportunity to kind of meet and interact with some of the people who've been doing the research yep. over the past 20 years. Yeah, they've been reading the the literature and reading the textbooks. That makes great sense. Well, thank you again. Hope this has been helpful to everyone, and thanks for coming to theheart.org. You've been listening to The Fellows Corner on theheart.org radio.